This week, the country narrowly avoided a massive railroad strike. Very early Thursday morning, freight railroad companies finally struck a deal with union workers who were fighting for better conditions. This is a huge relief, because if a strike had happened, it would have had huge consequences. Basically, what would have happened is that like 115,000 railroad workers in the United States would have gone on strike or solidarity with other workers who were going on strike. And this would have sort of paralyzed a major amount of the United States transportation infrastructure. Food, energy and water, you know, would have had a huge disruption to those things, but also retail. Basically, every part of the U.S. economy would have been affected. And like during a point in the economy where we're facing very high rates of inflation, like, you know, a supply chain crisis that already existed would have been exacerbated. Lauren Cowrie-Gurley covers labor at The Post. She got the scoop this morning that the strike had been averted, at least for now. But this labor drama could heat up again, and it shows just how precarious the U.S. economy is right now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 15th. Today, behind the scenes of the labor strike that wasn't. And later on the show, we dive deep into the threats that members of Congress are facing and what it means going into the midterms. So why did these railroad union workers want to strike in the first place? What was the issue here? The very heart of the issue was about sick leave policies, if you can believe it or not, um, but very important to workers. So over the past few years, the major class one railroads in the United States have unveiled these points-based attendance policies Hmm. that dock workers for calling out for any reason. Now, workers are on, like, call. Railroad workers, conductors and engineers, the people who operate trains, are typically on call 24-7 for, like, 14 days straight. And so if they need to go to the doctor or something, they often have to cancel, like, consistently because they get docked points. Um, One of the largest carriers, Burlington North, Santa Fe, which is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, rolled out this policy in February where workers start off with 30 points and anytime they miss work, they lose points. So, you know, if you missed work on Mother's Day or something like that, that's considered a high impact day or Super Bowl Sunday or something like this, you could lose half your points. And when you get down to zero points, you face suspension, termination. Conductors actually live in very rural parts of the United States where there's not very good cell service. So if you miss a call in the middle of the night, you lose half your points. Wow. So they obviously felt like this policy was unfair and that they, you know, couldn't do things like go to the doctor or like right. live their lives uh, without <laughs> worry that they were going to be fired. Right. They're living in fear. And why were these freight rail companies so um, <laughs> against just renegotiating that and saying, like, okay, like, let's come to an agreement about what would be a fair sick leave policy. Sure. The railroads have, like, lost or hemorrhaged workers during COVID. Like, it's become a job that not very many people want to work. It's like a lot of people suffer from chronic health conditions like obesity, high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. You're sitting for 12 to 14 hours a day. You don't eat well. You're you're dehydrated. You often are put up in motels, like for days on end. You don't know when you're going to be back on the road, hmm. um, and so they're really struggling to hire people and have people show up, especially during a supply chain crisis, to get workers to show up to work. And so they implemented these attendance policies. 
So the freight railroad companies, what did they say about their perspective on this and why these policies were in place? They basically said that workers actually receive a generous amount of vacation time and time off up to five weeks, depending on seniority. They have a lot of paid holidays and that they weren't willing to give the unions a say in how attendance policies are set because they're facing these labor shortages right now and they want to maintain the right to control their attendance policies. Otherwise, you know, there could be disruptions to to the railroad system. I think one other small thing is that Biden had a, a board that made some recommendations for what the new contract should look like. And Biden's board said, you don't need to change your attendance policies. You don't need to improve sick time options. So they pointed to that and said, hey, the president's board said no. And so we're not going to do anything about it. Tell me, where did they come to at the end? Like, So what is this agreement that has staved off the strike so we don't sure. have to worry about it for now? Sure. So at 4 a.m. this morning, they had been, I mean, they had basically been in talks all day yesterday. Uh, executives from the railroads and the unions were summoned to the Department of Labor by the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. They were in negotiations all day. They had Italian food. They were in there all night. And then somehow they emerged at 4 a.m. with a deal. And the deal is basically addressing this main concern that workers wanted to strike over sick time that they're not getting, attendance policies that are punitive. And basically what what the deal says is that they receive very, very big wage increases. But in addition to that, they had their primary um, concern addressed, which is that they can go to routine doctor's appointments. Um, If they're hospitalized or have surgery, they won't be docked points or penalized by the railroad companies or face discipline or suspension. And they're also were awarded one single extra paid day off. The part that really surprises me about this is the fact that President Biden is calling into these negotiations. I mean, this is a conflict between private companies and their employees. And I wonder, like, why is the government getting involved? There's a very unique part of labor relations. um, But the Railway Labor Act of 1926 was a piece of legislation that passed specifically to make it more difficult and create a lot more steps involving presidential power. And this is also true now of airline workers because of the huge economic, mm-hmm. um, you know, consequences of a strike like this. And B- basically so, saying, like, you guys can strike at the drop of a hat. You're so critical to the functioning of our nation that, like, right. we kind of have to be involved right. when you're considering striking. And if they did strike, I think for Biden, it would have been, it, w- it would have looked very bad to yeah. Biden. Or if the if the rail companies had locked out workers, just like a shutdown generally right now before the midterms. Mm-hmm. He's coming off a bunch of like big victories like the IRA getting passed, the Inflation Reduction Act. And so I think that a railway strike would have really hurt him politically and just the economy as well. So at this point, is the crisis completely averted? Like there will now definitely not be a strike? Or is this just a tentative deal and things might go haywire days or weeks from now? There's going to be a cooling off period of several weeks. And at the end of it, workers will have the opportunity to vote on these deals, these tentative deals that have been reached. So there are 12 unions. They all vote. They all have to ratify the agreement. Or if they don't, they go back to the bargaining table again. Hmm. And so there's still opportunity. If if the workers strike down these agreements, which they might, I mean, I've heard 
you know, mixed things coming from people today, reactions. Um, like, do we really trust a deal that like some people made in a room at 5 a.m., mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, you know, for for us? Um, and so they're down the road, the window could open again for a strike if, if workers don't take this deal. Now, I think that, you know, Biden and Secretary of Labor were probably fairly confident that this is something that workers will want to to vote to ratify, but it's it's not guaranteed. I wonder, what should we take away from all of this and and the fact that this is a, a narrowly averted crisis, but something that threatened to really have a dramatic effect on, on the economy? I mean, what does that tell us about the state of the economy right now or about the power of, of labor movements? I mean, I think big picture right now, you know, we're in a place coming off of COVID, like a pandemic recovery economy where a lot of things are sort of out of whack. Inflation is very high, but the labor market is super tight, meaning workers have more leverage than usual. There's fears of a recession that could be looming. The the Federal Reserve has been, you know, raising interest rates. Generally, it's a sign that workers have power. Despite that, there are certain conditions that they're facing that maybe the average person doesn't think like, oh, railroad workers don't get a single paid sick day that are are very upsetting to people and they're sort of using their leverage right now to push back against that. I think a sticking point for a lot of the workers that I've spoken to is that these railway companies that used to offer really good jobs, they say that they're no longer good jobs and they're deeply upset that railway executives who are making over $3 million a year in executive compensation are, you know, not willing to give them a single sick day. Um, it was one of the most dramatic standoffs between capital and labor that we've seen in a while. Lauren, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Lauren Cowrie Gurley covers labor for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. After the break, what happened when a man with a pistol showed up outside the home of a U.S. congresswoman? We'll be right back. Hello. Hi, this is Seattle 911. We got a hang-up call from you. Is everything okay? Yeah, thanks for calling back. This is Congresswoman Jayapal. I am okay. I was okay. just talking to my staff, mm-hmm. but um, we had, this is the third time it's happened, so we're going to report this to Capitol Police as well. Um, but these two guys uh, are just uh, continuing to stalk the house. Okay. So they just came in a car mm-hmm. and Uh, We're just, you know, screaming at us. In July, two men were outside the home of Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, and they started shouting at her. You're going to hear more of the 911 audio from this night. And just a warning, there's some strong language here. In the story, we're also going to play audio where you'll hear threats of physical harm and violence. So please be aware of that as you choose where and with whom you listen. Yes, they okay. came. Yes, they came earlier, uh-huh. and they were screaming at me. And uh, where are they right now? Are they like on called. your property? Where are they, ma'am? They are in their car in front of the house. I think. Okay. And they had been yelling things at you. What were they yelling? Yes. I, I'm. I'm telling them, babe. 
they were yelling. Uh-huh. Oh, gosh. Okay, okay, okay. American politics is at a fever pitch. As we get closer and closer to the November midterms, this schism between the political parties has only widened. And for many, many people around the country, they are taking out their rage on sitting members of Congress. Yeah, hi, Tramola. Hey, I just wanted to give you a little heads up. Get ready for the worst year of your life. It's going to be turmoil every day. This is going to be fun. Your life is going to be miserable. You're going to get exactly what you deserve. Ruby Kramer has been reporting on this dangerous new era in American politics. I've been mostly trying to do profiles of some of the people who are experiencing this really unprecedented moment in politics. And from the abortion ruling this summer to political violence and threats against members of Congress, um, we have some other stories coming that I think will touch on the same themes of just the reality of what the job of American public service is versus what a lot of these people think they're signing up for and the disconnect between those two things and the ways in which that's changed over time over the last kind of five years alone and some of the challenges that elected officials face just as part of the daily job of being in public office. Tell me about how you honed in on Congresswoman Jayapal. So I saw a story about the incident that occurred outside her house on July 9th. So this was around 10.38 p.m. on a Saturday night in July. Congresswoman Jayapal and her husband, Steve, were sitting on the couch in the living room watching Mindhunter. And all of a sudden, they heard a car speed down the block. They could hear two voices yelling, hey, Pramila, followed by various obscenities, the F word, the C word. Steve got up, paused the show, went out onto the porch. It was a quiet night. This is a very small neighborhood, the kind of place where when something happens on the street, everybody can hear it. The yelling continues. He hears one of the two men outside say, tell Pramila to kill herself, then we'll stop. Then there was another... FU, then the men drove away. Inside the house, this is when we hear Congresswoman Jayapal pick up the phone and dial 911. She actually hung up before it could connect because she decided she was just going to contact the Capitol Police through her staff. But as she later told me, she wasn't really sure what to do. I was really scared. I think scared is the right word. Um, scared. And my first thought was, have I been doxxed? You know, mm. why are people coming by? It, have I been doxxed? Yeah. Have they put my address out there? I thought these were all different people. What she didn't know until later was that one of the men was Brett Forsell, a 49-year-old lifelong Seattle resident. And the other man was uh, Mr. Forsell's adult son. And, you know, of course, what she didn't know when she was on the phone with 911 that evening for the first time was that he would come back about a half an hour later. So let's talk a little bit more about this incident in July. 
Who was this person? What's his background? And what do we know about what he was trying to do with this congresswoman? The man who was charged with felony stalking for showing up outside Congresswoman Jayapal's house is a man named Brett Forsell. Based on what we know from an email that he actually wrote Congresswoman Jayapal back in January, so about six months before this incident even occurred, he expressed in what was actually a very you know well-written kind of non-vitriolic email, relatively speaking, he expressed dislike for his congresswoman and her party and basically said he had seen his home city of Seattle morph from a relatively safe and beautiful place, to quote him, to a city that, in his words, was dirty and overrun by homeless people and not safe. And he was clearly expressing some disappointment in the way that the Democratic Party in Seattle and in Washington has run things. I think he was putting a lot of the blame on the on her party for the, where the city has ended up. And I think that he was also expressing in that email some displeasure with President Biden's leadership, gas prices, inflation. Um, so a fairly engaged person. And, you know, you wouldn't have necessarily thought that from that email, that this was a person who would actually take that displeasure and kind of turn it into action. What we know from his statements is that Mr. Forsell drove by Congressman Jayapal's house between three and seven times since late June before this July 9th incident. And essentially what he was doing during those visits was yelling out the window, yelling obscenities, according to the prosecutors on the case. And In his words, what he later told police was, I was driving by to call out the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party. And he made it very clear to police in sort of recorded video statements from the back of the police car on the night that he was detained that he never intended to hurt Congresswoman Jayapal. He does carry a gun, but he only carries it for protection. And that, you know, he was essentially expressing his First Amendment rights. He was doing nothing wrong and there were no crimes here. Is he going to face any legal consequences for this? So he has been charged with felony stalking, and he's pleaded not guilty. Um, He's also denied that he ever stepped on Jayapal's property. Uh, For now, the criminal case is still in its early stages. Uh, The way that prosecutors were able to even bring this case was because they were able to prove that he had shown up repeatedly um, and made what they have called very threatening remarks. Um, But he has made some key denials, um, including that he ever said, go kill yourself. Um, So I also want to note that. But through this whole experience, Congresswoman Jayapal has said that she felt very threatened. So so he's saying that he didn't have any intention of trying to hurt a congresswoman. But obviously, she feels differently. I mean, what was her reaction to this happening? and, And what did it say to her? She said she felt threatened and did not feel safe, and that as a result of Mr. Forsell's actions, she no longer feels safe in her own home and in her neighborhood. Um, I know that the congresswoman was very eager for prosecutors to even go forward with hate crime charges because of some of what was captured on video from this incident with Mr. Forsell and his son. You could hear something in the video being shouted about India, the country where Jayapal was born. But Forsell denied making comments about her race and ethnicity during that confrontation. Um, you know, it, 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 I wish 
this could be charged as a hate crime because I, I believe it was. But the, as you know, the standard to prove a hate crime is extremely difficult. And unfortunately, I think it sometimes that minimizes that these are hate crimes, you know, and that they are, there is clear xenophobic, hateful rhetoric that is being used. It's, it's, you do run up against free speech questions and that's what he's claiming even with this um that you know he's got free speech first amendment rights no first amendment rights protect somebody from threatening behavior violent behavior at somebody's home with a gun the prosecutor did not move forward on hate crime charges in fact the seattle police department didn't even refer the crime as hate crime charge so um that was dropped and she even expressed you know some disappointment with me that 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 wasn't the case. So let's talk a little bit more about Pramila Jayapal. Um, what kind of role does she play in Congress and why is she receiving these threats? Why has she become such a target? So Pramila Jayapal is in her third term. She uh, represents most of the city of Seattle. She's a Democrat. She is the chair of the Progressive Caucus, which is a body of about 101 members of Congress who represent the sort of left wing of the party. And she was elected in 2016, the same year as Donald Trump. And she was kind of from that moment presented as an anti-Trump. Her husband, Steve Williamson, told me that she was, you know, the bright light in the an otherwise, you know, sea of darkness. The other story was um, she's the anti-Trump. And I wanted them to know. I said, I know you guys know your stuff, but I want you to know, um, I know who she is. I know what she's going to do. I thought I knew Trump. I mean, I thought I knew Trump. I don't sit back. No threat, no intimidation is going to stop me from doing what I think is right. So she was already getting a lot of attention then. She's the first sole leader of the Progressive Caucus um, in a number of years. So she does have a prominent role in Congress. And I think especially since President Biden came in, she's been a key figure in negotiations. One other thing to know about her is she has a background in advocacy work. She was a huge figure after 9-11 in organizing against anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim bias. And I think she's someone who is not afraid to kind of get in the middle of a fight. So she does sort of get a lot of attention from the right. And I've gotten nasty stuff and death. I got death threats when I started One America after 9-11. I've had people forever telling me to go back to India. Um, But I will say that this was different. Yeah, it it sounds like what happened in July is a reflection of a larger, frankly, trend of what has been happening to Congresswoman Jayapal. Can you talk a little bit more about the other types of harassment that she's faced or, or how this has started to affect her job and and her office? Yeah, I mean, she is someone, you know, like many other members who gets just dozens of threatening phone calls, letters, messages. Hey, Chapel Paul, you gotta be the ugliest mother in the world. What, what, who beat you with an ugly stick? Hey, how do you say your name, Congresswoman Jack off? Yeah, that's what I thought. God damn you, liberal f- cut. Your f- day is coming. God damn. As soon as the president's installed, like on November 4th or 5th, we're f- coming after all you mother f- You're going to be scrubbing f- 
floors for the rest of your life, you f***ing whore. And I think we kind of take for granted that that's, you know, that's a part of the job. You know, everyone gets hate mail. Half the time you don't even think about it because it's anonymous. You're like, sort of like, who is, is this person even real on the other side of this? Um, I think she's also someone who's kind of taken some of it to heart. It shouldn't be that if you sign up to be an elected official, we sign up for a lot of things and I am, but it should not be that you get this kind of abuse and racism and sexism directed at you, but you sort of, you have to get, you have to accept it if you want to do this job, which I think is just a whole different, and the threat to the family and the effect I mean, just watching Steve go through January 6th, not being able to be in touch with me, seeing me on the TV, our kids, my mom, you know, everybody, it just is, um, it creates destruction in our communities. I think she's also struggled with the question of, am I expected to talk about this? What do you mean by that? Like, what what is she weighing there? I think she feels attention there. I think she knows that even talking about this incident on July 9th, releasing some of these voicemails saying, yes, they are racist. Yes, they are sexist. She knows there's going to be people who basically say, stop whining or you're making a big deal out of stuff that everybody gets. And it's, it is that tension because in part, I don't really want people to know it affects me. And at the same time, so much of my work as a as an activist and as a member of congress is to share vulnerability i mean to to show people that we are just like you you know just because we're elected it doesn't mean we're not dealing with many of the same issues she also told me that this is something that she's privately talking about with other women of color members of congress and i think she was saying like listen we this is stuff we talk about but why are we am i afraid to share it publicly, and if so, why? Maybe it is this sense of, like, that tension again of, do you want to put this out and encourage more of these? Does it encourage more of it? And I think it's not really shocking to any of us to hear that these threats are on the rise. I mean, when you think about the kind of political vitriol that we see around us, um, it makes sense that that's coming out in these targeted threats at members of Congress. But I also wonder, like, how far-reaching are they? Or are Republicans experiencing these kinds of attacks as well? I mean, is this something that is affecting everyone in Congress? I think it is. What we know about the data that is kept by Capitol Police, which is the agency that's tasked with protecting members of Congress, is that there were 9,600 cases of threats against members of Congress last year. And that's up from about 4,000 in 2017. So, you know, the number is going up exponentially year after year. I know that in the first three months of this year alone, there were nearly 2,000 new cases. And some of the most high-profile Um, legal cases that have been brought against people who make threats against politicians have been against Republicans too. There was a man who was sentenced in Alaska for sending threatening voicemails to the two U.S. senators from Alaska, and both of those U.S. senators are Republicans. One incident that sticks with me still is watching Lee Zeldin, the Republican candidate for governor in New York, on a totally normal campaign stage at what looked to be like a small campaign event, very like low-key vibe. There's only one 
And then, you know, in videos of it, you see this man charging the stage coming at him. And so I do think that there are plenty of Republicans who are getting this stuff just as much. I mean, we know from the January 6th hearings just how much security um, Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney have had to get just to go back to their districts. I mean, when Liz Cheney was campaigning for re-election, she wasn't even releasing her public campaign schedule to reporters who wanted to cover events. It was all privately organized and back-channeled with her staff and the reporters because there was such a security risk. I think another example that we see is just for basic town halls in sort of competitive districts across the country. Members of Congress are having to hire private security, again, just to do what we think of as like the most basic routine campaign event, a town hall. Yeah, I mean, it makes me ask the question of what kind of effect that has on democracy and on the jobs that these lawmakers are supposed to do. I mean, the kind of central tenet is that they are responsible to voters who have an opportunity to meet them and talk to them and, you know, share their concerns or grievances about about what's happening. And if that, you know, if even like being in contact with your constituents is a security threat, I mean, that's, I don't know, it just seems like untenable. I totally agree. It's like you don't want to be afraid of your own constituents or of what is supposed to be at the heart of this like social contract with our elected officials, which is like, at the end of the day, a conversation. If elected officials can't have a conversation with a voter, how can they learn the sorts of issues that are troubling people in the district they're supposed to represent? And I think it creates this really tense distance between public officials and the public. I think it weakens the appeal of American public service, which is really sad. And and what's the solution here? Like, how could this change? Well, this is something that Congresswoman Jayapal is trying to fix, at least in the House of Representatives. She is trying to get members of Congress to sort of wake up to the reality of where we are when it comes to security. She put together a letter in August to... Speaker Nancy Pelosi asking for essentially just revamped guidelines on what are the basic things that politicians should be doing to protect themselves if something does happen, creating like a real-time like flowchart, in her words, of what to do when something like this occurs. And then there's the issue of funding, too, which she's been pushing to create more funding and flexibility for how members of Congress might fund added security if it is something that they need. I mean, that's all important. And and I think facing these threats, I mean, it, it is vital for these lawmakers to have some kind of security plan in place. But but that's not a solution, right? That's just like a response to this problem that's just getting worse and worse. And I mean, I don't know if there is a solution. Yeah, I don't know if there is a solution either. I think the solution is so intertwined with all of the reasons why we've seen our politics get more divisive over the last five years. And a true solution would probably involve some depolarization of American media. It would involve members of Congress saying very loudly and clearly together that 
violence is not acceptable. And I think it would involve this like way more nebulous sense of like, okay, can we take the temperature down somehow? It's interesting to hear you say that because it it does feel like there is this tension here, especially for Republicans who I am sure are also super worried about these kinds of security threats. I mean, that they have been victimized by this too. And yet at the same time, what it seems is fueling a lot of these attacks on lawmakers and a lot of this like angry rhetoric is the stuff about the election was stolen, you can't trust the government, you know, that 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 rhetoric that really undermines people's faith in, in lawmakers and makes them angry and makes them want to attack people. So I just it's it's hard for me to square or understand like how are Republicans thinking about this while they're, I imagine, both scared on the one side, but not actually doing anything or doing enough, a lot of people would argue, to bring down that temperature, as you said. Yeah, I think you're completely right when the entire posture of the current Republican Party is fixated on this idea of an election being stolen and, you know, false claims about how the entire thing is rigged and your elected officials are lying to you and government can't be trusted and media can't be trusted and none of it can be trusted. That is the creating a structure in which maybe people are being encouraged to lash out against those systems and the people in them. I think it's a really difficult balance. And I think you're seeing more of it sort of seep out into the basic kind of day-to-day campaigning. I'm also curious. It it feels like, or I can imagine that the point of these threats is to get them to quit, right? It's to make it scary enough or difficult enough for them that they just give up and go away. And for someone like Congresswoman Jayapal, I mean, is that happening to her? Like, is she reconsidering or even regretting entering politics because of what she's had to deal with? I don't think she's regretting getting into politics. I think she is surprised by how much she's having to change her relationship with the work that she's doing in politics. She is completely shaken by this and she's thought about moving neighborhoods about leaving her house as a result of this particular issue at least has to sort of change the way she goes about her day-to-day routines there's a essentially a protection order that's put in place that prevents Mr. Forsell from coming in within 1000 feet of Jayapal and they live about 7 blocks away so She's completely changed the way that she drives to the grocery store, to the airport, to work. I think more than the kind of inconvenience of having to take a different or longer route, it's that mental shift that's occurred where she's sort of in the back of her mind, like vigilant about, do I have to think about the threats against you more? Will there be other people who come to the house? If by talking about it, will I invite more people to come to the house? Will I invite more Will I invite more harassing emails or threats? I think all of these decisions are taking up more mental space than she would have guessed when she came into office in 2016. Ruby, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thank you for having me. Ruby Kramer is a national political reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Arjun Singh. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and Renny Svernovsky. It was edited by Rena Flores. If you value the kinds of reporting that you hear on our show, on politics, on voting, on the state of our democracy, consider becoming a subscriber to The Washington Post. You can do that by going to postreports.com slash offer. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.